The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, last week, uh, after the message, we, we sang the doxology, and I didn't really notice anything different. And I got home, and people started texting me. Uh, you know, I didn't know that, that our pastor was George Strait. <laughs> and I didn't know, yeah, I even got a, a phone call from my parents and my grandma, and they thought, because I have a terrible singing voice, absolutely. <laughs> Any of y'all seen that uh, Andy of Mayberry episode where Barney joins the choir, <laughs> and they get somebody else to sing in the background? I'm Barney Fife when it comes to singing. So last week, y'all remember there was a miscommunication and the worship team wasn't ready to come up here and do the doxology. And I just said, fine, I'll do it to my wife's horror. (laughs) She couldn't believe I was going to do that. Well, Barry was Johnny on the spot. And I didn't even hear this because I, I, for whatever reason, I couldn't hear it in here. But on the live stream, I think everybody heard it. And Barry, just in that split second, when I said, I'll lead it, he went and found Josh Turner singing the doxology and played it and it happened to sync with my lips. It was like I was, I was singing the doxology and all, you, and all people could hear on the live stream was Josh Turner. So, I, and, and I think some of you really thought it was my singing voice. I can promise you it was not my singing voice. But, Maybe I should take voice lessons and, and go, go try and see if I can. Amazing. I will never forget that. <laughs> I will never forget that. <laughs> well, if you would, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. Speaking of singing and worship, we are in a short series on worship, and we're looking at the principles that Jesus teaches us on true worship from John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 20 to 24. The woman said to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit 
and truth. Brief prayer. Pray with me. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake, amen. So, if you've been with us the previous few weeks, the principles that we've already covered that Jesus teaches us are first, the universality of worship, the fact that everybody that has ever lived is a worshiper, that God created us to worship Him. Second is the object of worship, that God and God alone is the object of our worship. And you see this in the text with this emphasis on worshiping the Father, that we are to worship the Father and to worship Him in spirit and truth, that God and God alone is the object of our worship, and therefore that God and God alone is the evaluator of our worship. God is the one who chooses whether or not the worship is good or bad. Third, we saw the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator of our worship, that all worship has to go through Him if God is going to accept it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. They will start worshiping through Him. I was talking to a friend this week just talking about Christmas music coming up, and we were talking about something regarding the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, just how how great they are and, and the songs that they produce around Christmas time. And we then talked about, isn't it interesting how excellent they are, but yet because they're not going through the Lord Jesus Christ as the one true mediator, God doesn't accept it. God doesn't accept it. And then we talked about last week the supremacy of worship, that worship is supreme. It's the highest thing in the heart of God because God's glory is the highest apex of God's heart. His desire is to honor and glorify His own name. And so that's why at the end of verse 23, it says that the Father is seeking people to worship Him, that the Father is going out and seeking worshipers and saving them, that God saves people in order that we might worship Him. That's why you're saved if you're in Christ. So those are the four principles that we've looked at that Jesus has taught so far. And this morning, we're going to look at one more. And the principle that we are going to look at this morning is the requirements of worship. The requirements of worship. One of the realities that if you've read the Bible, one of the realities that just pops up over and over and over and over and over again is that God does not accept all worship. That God does not accept all worship. And you see this even in Genesis chapter 4. Remember, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. One offers a sacrifice of fruit. One offers a lamb. God only accepts one, right? Whose was it? Abel's. He rejects Cain's worship. You see it with Saul. You remember Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to come after they defeated the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13. And what does Saul do? He goes ahead and he offers sacrifices. And when Samuel gets there, he says, hey, Saul, you need to know God has rejected the worship. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, this is the last book in the, in the Old Testament, Malachi uh, 
God sends him to tell the priests in Jerusalem that God does not accept their sacrifices because they had been offering lame animals, blind animals, deficient animals in the sacrifices. And so this is what Malachi tells the priests. This is Malachi 1, verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. So God does not accept the offering that they offered because it was blemished. Okay, you say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, do you remember in the early church, Acts chapter 5? What happens in Acts chapter 5? There's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell property for such and such a price, and then they bring an offering uh, to the apostles for the early church, and, they, and they, they give a false price, and they bring the offering and Peter uh, tells um, Sapphira, he says, or Ananias, he says, God's going to strike you dead. And the same thing happens with his wife, Sapphira. She comes, and Peter asks, did you sell it for such and such price? She said, we did. And Peter says, just as people carried out your husband, now they're going to carry out you. And God struck her down as well. So God rejected their worship. So it's important that we see here what Jesus lays out, which is the criteria, and there's two of them, for how we are to worship a holy God, how our worship can be acceptable to God. And you see this throughout the entire dialogue. This is the woman's question. Look at verse 20. This is what she's asking. She's asking a question of acceptability, She says, our fathers bowed down on this mountain, talking about Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And she says, but you say that in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, is the place where people ought to worship or bow down. That's what the word means. She's asking, what's acceptable to God? You're you're a prophet. What does God actually accept? We've been wanting to find find out the answer to this question. Jesus responds in verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying, look, your your question's actually irrelevant because I am ushering in a new era of worship where I am fulfilling all of the Old Testament laws, regulations, festivals, temple worship, so now it will no longer matter whether you worship on this mountain or that mountain, because now true worshipers will worship through me. But then look what he says in verse 22. It's very important. He essentially circles back around to her question and says, but to answer your question, you need to know that the Samaritan worship has been unacceptable to God. That's what he says. He says, you worship what you do not know. We, talking about the Jews, Worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
The Samaritans, if you remember, had not accepted any of the revelation after the book of Deuteronomy. So all, all of the instructions regarding the temple worship that are given in the rest of the Old Testament, they didn't consider that part of their Bible because they didn't want to go down to Jerusalem to worship. And so they rejected that revelation. And Jesus is saying, look, because you've rejected the revelation, you're worshiping on the wrong mountain. You, you've been worshiping up here, and you haven't been worshiping the right way. You haven't been worshiping according to right knowledge of God. And I think what Jesus is saying is something that he's going to elaborate on more in the next two verses. But what he's saying is you need to understand that the foundational element of worship, of all true worship, is this. It's truth. The foundational element of worship is truth. It must be grounded in the truth. That's the non-negotiable bedrock of all true Christian worship. And by truth, Jesus means clearly here two things. Two things. It's important that you see this. One, it's the right knowledge of God. That, that you have to know the God that you're worshiping, right? That you... The, the, all, all the Muslims today who are worshiping Allah, it doesn't matter how sincere they are, but they don't have the right truth about who God is. They're worshiping a false God, not the true God. So, so there has to be the right knowledge of who God is. And second, there also has to be the right form, the right expression of worship, of how God has prescribed that we are to worship Him. And those things go hand in hand. Who God is, and then the form that God has prescribed that we are to worship Him with. And you see that all throughout when God institutes the, the tabernacle and the temple. He's saying, this is who I am. But He's also saying that the form matters. That the way that you set up the tabernacle matters. The, the Levites that are to offer the sacrifices, who they are, matter. So, truth is foundational to true worship. And Jesus said, you remember John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, this truth of who Jesus is and what he has done is the ground of all true worship. And, and, and if you've, you know, the first four chapters of John's gospel, you just see that over and over and over again. You know, unless you are born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It, true worship now must begin with the truth of who Christ is. And so, I don't know what walk of life you're in or how you ended up here this morning. You need to know this, that God made you a worshiper. He did. And he made you to come to him and find your joy in him and to glorify him. But he cannot and he will not accept your worship if it's outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. So trust Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and you will be a true worshiper. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being a true 
worshiper. Look at verse 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers. So, so he's, he, he's setting this up against the false worship. He's saying, look, you need to know what the true worship is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit, or God is spirit, rather, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What are the two criteria that Jesus lays out for true worship? There's two. It's very simple. True, worshiper, true worshipers worship the Father in the spirit and truth. Those are the two requirements for God to accept the worship. Now, in spirit and truth, you know, you read different commentaries and different study Bibles, it's a very debated phrase. People, people argue about what that means. What does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and truth? But I think if you look at the context here, the context really helps us interpret what it means. So by truth, Jesus has already elaborated in the previous verses what he means. He's saying, look, your worship has to be uh, according to God's truth. Without it, you're, you're just in the dark, you know, throwing darts at a, at a dartboard. You don't even know where the board is. You, your worship is missing without the truth. So we've already seen that in the context. But what does he mean by worship in spirit? Does he mean that we are to worship by means of the Holy Spirit? Is that what he means? That's what a lot of people think he means. Obviously, we do worship in, in the power of the, the Holy Spirit, but I don't think that's the exact meaning of Jesus here because look at verse 24. What does he say? He says, God is spirit. He's talking about God being a transcendent reality above matter, time, and space, that God is a, a spiritual being. Therefore, he's saying if we are to offer right worship to God, it has to be with our own spirit, with our own soul, because we're worshiping a spiritual being. Mary, the mother of Jesus in the Magnificat, says this in Luke one forty six. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. That is the essence of all true worship, that, that worship is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the soul. It's worshiping God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That's what Jesus said. Remember, a scribe, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, right before he was arrested and, and crucified, uh, a scribe who would have been a Pharisee came to Jesus and asked Jesus, he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds to him in Mark 12, 29. He says, the most important is, quoting Deuteronomy 6, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. What's he saying? He's saying that we are to worship God in the heart, to worship God 
with our spirit. Our spirit, our soul, those are interchangeable words essentially in Scripture. It consists of three things. So when we're talking about worshiping in spirit, your spirit consists of three things. Your mind, your affections, and your will. So you, you know God and, and you praise Him in your mind, but it doesn't just stop there. It goes to your affections that you love Him with your heart, and then you obey Him. You love to obey Him. And that's what Jesus says in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. They come after me. They obey me. So we are to worship God in the way that He has revealed to us to worship, in spirit and truth. This is what true worship is. Now, this morning, to understand this, what I wanted to do is I wanted to show you what true worship is by talking about what it is not. Because I think right now what we are experiencing in Western Christianity is quite a number of false expressions of worship. There's a lot of people meeting this morning, and for whatever reason, a number of reasons, they're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. Maybe some of you aren't worshiping in spirit and truth. And so to begin to understand this, I want to start by understanding it by negation. What does it not mean to worship in spirit and in truth. And by the way, our country is in need of a revival, isn't it? You know, I talk to people all the time. Just Friday night, I was over at some people's house, and they said, man, the only thing that's going to save this country is a revival. And, and I absolutely think that's correct, that we need a great stirring of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, a revival, friends... We think of revival as, as people out there being saved and all those things. That happens in a revival. But a revival actually, in its essence, is when the church is awakened. And then people start coming to know the Lord because they're like, man, what's going on with the church? There's power there, and we, didn't, we haven't seen power like this before in the church. And so often when there is a revival, when there is a reformation, Often it's a revival of true worship in the life of a church and in the life of churches. People rediscover God and they're struck by the presence of God and, and true worship begins to happen. So let's look at these false expressions of worship. I don't know if we'll have time to, to get through all of them this morning, but let, let's start going through them. And, and I think the first one that we're going to look at might be the most insidious and, and the most prevalent for us. But the first that we're going to look at is formalism. Formalism. And what formalism is, is simply worshiping in outward form, but not the soul, not the heart. That, that you're worshiping in an outward expression, maybe you're bowing down, maybe you're lifting your hands, maybe you're here this morning on a Sunday morning, you're worshiping in an outward form, but you're not worshiping in the heart. That's what formalism is. 
And I think this is probably one of the greatest false expressions of worship in the Western world. Uh, You have entire churches, entire churches here downtown that lost the gospel a long time ago. And so the people that are coming, they're coming because they're father came and their grand, granddaddy came. He donated the, the bricks to the church or whatever. And so they're coming and putting a check in the box, but they're not even born again. It's just the form. But there's, but there's actually no inner expression of worship. That's formalism. Or it's the believer who's grown complacent, who isn't walking with the Lord, and who's just come, well, I guess I need to go to church. I mean, that's what Christians do. And you come, and you sit down, and you go to church. But you're not engaging. You're not actually participating in the worship. You're standing back and evaluating the worship, but you're not stepping in and participating in the worship. Or it could be that you're harboring a life of sin and that you're looking at pornography or you're gossiping about people behind their backs, or you're chasing after the things of the world, and then you're coming on Sunday morning and saying, God, accept this worship. But you haven't repented of the sins that you're holding in your hand. And this was just so prevalent. Uh, This is just, you read the Old Testament prophets, and this is just, over and over and over again, the prophets are coming to the children of Israel and saying, look, God is not accepting your worship. But because we're church-going people, this, this is our greatest tendency, is just to get in a, in a rut of just showing up without the inner expression. J.C. Ryle said, we are all naturally inclined to make religion a mere matter of outward forms and ceremonies. We're all prone to this. All prone to this. Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He's quoting Isaiah 29, 13. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's saying, look, in vain do you worship God. It's not from the heart. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. This is almost in the middle of the Old Testament. And turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse 10. Isaiah 1, it's right after Song of Solomon, beginning in verse 10. This is what Isaiah says. I mean, this is how he opens the book of Isaiah. Talk about opening with a bang. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. They knew straight who Sodom and Gomorrah were and the stories about how God destroyed those cities. He's calling the the children of, of Israel basically pagan 
cities that were destroyed. Now, remember, he's speaking. This is the word of the Lord. He's speaking on behalf of God. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Listen to this. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's calls. Wow. Your worship is an abomination to me, says the Lord of hosts to his children. Now, if you would, turn back to, to John 4. I think the principle is clear, isn't it? God will not accept worship that doesn't come from the heart. He just will not accept it. Here's the good news. God will accept it when we repent. God will accept our worship when we repent. Repentance means a turning. When we say, look, I'm going to turn from my ways, and I am going to do a 180-degree turn. I'm going to turn the boat around and go the opposite direction, and I am going to bring all of my heart to God in worship. When I come on Sundays, I am going to sing praises from my heart to Him, and I'm going to bring a life that has been worshiping God all week long because that is what the Lord delights in, is, is a worshiping life. Listen to what James says in James 4.8. He says, draw near to God. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded he says, repent and draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There was a song when I was in high school that Matt Redman wrote. Many, many of you probably remember it. Probably almost all of you have sung it. It's called The Heart of Worship. Do you all remember this song? He said, I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. 
and I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. We need that reminder, don't we? That it's not, the form is important. It's here, it's important that you're worshiping God, that you're getting on your knees, that you're opening your Bible, that you're praying, that you're fellowshipping with other believers, you're coming to worship with the, the Lord on the Lord's day. But the form itself is not enough. It has to be worship from the heart. That's the point. So that's the, the formalism. Second is commercialism. And we're not going to spend much time on this because we've actually looked at this extensively in John chapter 2 when we looked at the, the uh, story when Jesus cleanses the temple. But commercialism is the conduct of religious services for the purpose of financial gain. And friends, this is American religion. (laughs) I mean, it's been satirized in movies, you know, the the snake oil salesman preachers that are traveling around trying to get people to give them money. You have literally an entire prosperity gospel that is built around monetizing worship. It says, look, if you send in money and sow a seed, that God will turn around and bless that, and then you're going to get much more money in return. That, that, that's the message that is being proclaimed in the biggest church in America this morning. Joel Osteen, that's his message. It's the prosperity gospel. You know what? It damns people to hell. Because because Jesus said, look, if you want to come after me, what must you do? True faith is take up your cross daily and follow me. You want to come after me, you must be willing to lose your life. It's not about hitching your wagon to me so you can have a mansion here. The kingdom of God is spiritual here. Jesus said, I'm going to my Father's house. There are your many mansions. It's the hope of glory in the future. It's not the the hope of wealth, prosperity, and all those things. Anyway, this is the air we breathe. You you understand this. You know this. But what, what people were doing in Jerusalem is they were monetizing the worship. And you go read in John chapter 2, what they had done is the outer court in the temple was for the purpose of God-fearing Gentiles to come and worship. That's what the outer court was for. And what they had done is they had turned that into a bazaar, and they had set up all these booths in the outer court where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship, and they started selling the, the pigeons and the doves and the lambs and all those things in the outer court. And that's why Jesus says in John 2, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And I love what John says. He says, the disciples later remembered about Jesus that zeal for his father's house consumed him. Zeal for the right worship of God consumed the Lord Jesus. And he wouldn't stand 
for the monetization of worship. And he flipped the tables. You think Jesus is serious about this? He's very serious about this. In churches that monetize the worship, and I, I use that word in, in, in quotations because they're not true churches if they don't have the true gospel. Jesus ultimately will flip the tables on those institutions. He will. Because Jesus is consumed, the Lord Jesus is consumed with true worship for God. And this is why Paul warns Timothy, young pastor, 1 Timothy 6, we study this in our series on 1 Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, he says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In American Christianity, it's not just the prosperity preachers that are consumed are concerned about the financial wealth. Um, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, he says, a time will come when people will start scratching people's ears. When people will essentially tell, when pastors and evangelists will tell people what they want to hear. Because when you tell people what they want to hear and not what they need to hear, the money keeps flowing. You tell people that they're great, that God loves them without repentance, without faith, that we're all God's children, that you have all the promises of God regardless of whether you're actually born again. You tell people that, of course they're going to keep giving money. That God loves me and my lifestyle without repentance, of course, sure. Here's, here's a paycheck from a big foundation sponsored by a big corporation. We'll give to that. We, we like that, Jesus. cannot monetize worship. The moment you do it, it's dead, and God rejects it, and Jesus will flip the tables on that church. He will remove its lampstand. Read Revelation, the first few chapters. The Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, you turn from Him, and you turn to mammon. The Lord Jesus, He grabs that lampstand, and He torches it out. Look, we're at a crossroads here. I think I've said enough this morning. We'll look at the other three next week. But I want to leave you this with a word of encouragement. Um, turn back over to Isaiah chapter 1. Turn back over to Isaiah And I want you to look at verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1. It 
Look what the Lord says after he's gone through this whole thing about how he doesn't accept their worship, how their worship is an abomination, how everything that they've offered is unacceptable. Look what the Lord says. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isn't that beautiful and wonderful? God says, look, I know that you failed in your worship. I know it's been not offered properly. But I am a forgiving God and a merciful God. And friends, that's why the Lord Jesus came. That's why the Lord Jesus is having this conversation with this Samaritan woman. Because an hour is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth with all of their sins washed away by his blood. He did that for you so that you could offer true and acceptable worship to God. It's by grace, all of it, from beginning to end. Christianity is a religion of grace. So come to him. If you need to repent of formalism or any false expression of worship, come to him. Confess your sin, but know that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and recommit your life to true and faithful worship to God. He accepts it because he accepts his son's sacrifice. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that we've been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. That though our sins be like scarlet, that you wash them white as snow. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy and for calling us into right relationship with you so that we can offer up praises to God. Lord, we're sorry for the thing that we've made of worship. We're all guilty of going through the forms. We're all guilty of raising up hands with unrepentant sin. And so, Lord, we confess that. And we come to you now, Lord, and we, we desire to honor you. And Lord, may zeal for your house, zeal for your name, consume us like it consumed the Lord Jesus Christ. That true worship would consume our hearts because it's all about you. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. This is our confession. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.